This morning, I want to look at Psalm 22. Thank you, Daniel. Psalm 22, it's, it's hard to believe it's going to be Easter in two weeks. The next thing we know, we'll be singing Christmas songs. And another, <laughs> oh, the looks on some of your faces. My goodness. It's Somebody was telling me about how time seems to be going by so much faster. I can't remember who it was. and They were attributing it to the fact that they're older. And, uh, of course, I... I agreed with their assessment that time seems to be going by faster, but I refuse to want to admit that I'm getting older. But uh, the the problem with that, we all are. Um, like, where's my microphone? You know, I mean, it, it's... Um, but nonetheless, I, I wanted to bring this out this morning and, and to give you the opportunity to... Um, just to really give some thought to this particular psalm as we're approaching Easter. And, and I think sometimes with Easter, we, we want to rush to the resurrection. Now, I, I don't find any fault with that. But we want to rush to the resurrection. We want, we want the good part, you know. How many, I didn't, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many, I don't do this, by the way, but how many people you buy a new book and the first thing you do is read the last chapter? Most of you don't. I always, do you always read, I always read the introduction. Sometimes the only thing I read in the book is the introduction. Because um, a lot of times the introduction will tell you everything you need to know. Um, but, but I do know people that they, they want to rush to the end of the story. And the, the end of the story is important. Without the resurrection, our faith is, is in vain. Without the resurrection, we might as well just go home. And, and not bother with any of this. Um, if, if there is no resurrection, then we are still dead on our trespasses and sin. But I think equally as important of the resurrection, as important as it is, is, is the path that it took to get there. The sacrifice that it took uh, on the Lord Jesus Christ's behalf, or, or for our behalf, the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ took on our behalf so that we can celebrate the resurrection, so that often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You have the death and the resurrection both present in, in what Paul declared in, in First, uh, Thess, uh, First Corinthians chapter 11. And, and, and so in Psalm 22, in verse 1, he, there's this, uh, expression where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my help are the words of my groaning. I'm reading from the New American Standard 2020 edition. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, now the New King James says by the night season, I believe. By night, but I have no rest, yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. 
So, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this passage, as we allow you to instruct us and to bring to light this, this wonderful psalm and help us to, to not only uh, have it before us during this Easter season, but also to apply it directly into our own lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless your to our hearts and that we might be instructed by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. The first verse of this particular psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we read it and uh, Jesus declared it both in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. I believe it's Mark 15 and it is Matthew 27, right around verse 45. And, and also this psalm is later quoted uh, from verses I have, I, that we did read earlier, but I, I didn't read uh, just a minute ago. It's quoted by uh, John in John 19, uh, 24, and also quoted by Paul. Uh, he quotes Psalm 22, 22 uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, so you have in this psalm, and that's, it was lengthy, wasn't it? it was, and hopefully it wasn't too lengthy to read. But I wanted to read the whole thing because you have the suffering and you have the death of Jesus in the first part of the psalm, but then you have this incredible pivot within the psalm where it really declares the resurrection. And, and so actually the, uh, a, a week from Wednesday, this next Wednesday we're not going to have study, but a week from Wednesday I want to I look at bits and pieces of this particular psalm, things that I won't cover this morning. Um, but it's, it's the, particularly the first part is a very intense uh, expression of grief. Now, this psalm is messianic. This psalm is talking about Jesus on the cross. But when it was first written by David, did the Holy Spirit come to David and say, Hey, David, I, I want, let's write a messianic psalm this morning. Grab your pen. Could have it, could have it had happened that way? Yes. I don't think it did. That's just my opinion, and we know what we say around here, don't we? Your mileage may vary. I think David wrote this out of his own experience. I think David wrote this from the difficulties and, and uh, the trials that he was enduring in his own life. And, and the Holy Spirit came upon David as he's writing this, this psalm. It's, it's like poetry. It, it would make more sense if, if we read it in the Hebrew, but if I read it in the Hebrew, I would just botch it all. I, I can't even do the Greek well, let alone the Hebrew. But anyway, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a piece of poetry that David wrote and the Holy Spirit coming upon him and interjecting these things uh, I believe that, that David wrote down. Even some of them, David may have written them and maybe not quite understanding why it was that he did write them. Maybe it just fit well in the prose. That is speculation. Okay, that is, uh, we don't know 
exactly the interaction between the Holy Spirit and David when he wrote this. But I do believe this is a part of Scripture, and the book of Hebrews tells us that all of Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, God-inspired. The Holy Spirit breathed into the author. Now, there are different views on this, and I end up getting in arguments with people from time to time. But I believe the Holy Spirit breathed into the author using the personality, the understanding, the intellect, uh, uh, and everything about that person. And that's why we have, for example, that's why we have four different Gospels. Because there are four different writers who write from four different perspectives. That's just one example of why I, I believe this uh, in, in the way that I do. Um, and as I, as I read this and thought about this, Yes, this is messianic. Yes, we need to keep this before us as a reminder of the suffering that Jesus did for us. But yes, this is also our experience from time to time. Because if you haven't, well, I won't say it like that. I'm willing to bet, I don't bet, right? But I'm willing to bet that all of you at one point, at one time in your life, have not prayed this prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of us maybe have prayed it a whole lot more than we ever wanted to. And, and this is a psalm of, the, at least the first part of the psalm, it is a psalm of lament. It is a psalm of crying out to God. It is a psalm of complaining. And I think that, I've thought about this, I've given a lot of thought about when, when, when people complain. Now, now, we all complain, all right? Let's, let's be honest, we all complain. And why do we complain? The reality is because it feels good once we get it off our chest. So uh, what I'd like to do is go around the room and give her, no, starting with Jeannie, no, uh, no I'm kidding. But, and, and, I, and I, I think sometimes we say stop your sniveling, stop your whining. And I've been guilty of saying that before. But I don't see the Holy Spirit saying that here in this passage. I see the Holy Spirit breathing upon David. Yes, I understand your situation. I want you to pen this. I want you to write this. Because as I think about this of those times that I had felt forsaken, I don't even begin to understand what that means compared to how Jesus must have felt when he was on the cross. And, 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 and just the, the, the incredible heartbreak that God the Son went through when he was forsaken by God the Father. You see, we, we, we gravitate at times, I think, to complain because it's a catharsis. It's a release of the emotion, right? And it feels good. It does. It feels good. Um, And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. 
Because sometimes I think we are like a soda pop. That we get shaken and we get shaken and we get shaken and we get shaken. And all of a sudden the lid just blows off. And God help the people that were around when that happens, right? Now, of course, uh, I'm not describing any of you. I'm talking about my last church. Why is some of you looking at each other with that? Never mind. Uh, look at the ceiling mic and keep going. But uh, here's the problem with complaining. We gravitate toward the catharsis, the release of the emotion so that we feel better rather than allowing the circumstances to be the means by which God transforms us. Now think about that a second. And especially if I'm angry, I don't want God to transform me. I just want to moan, groan, and complain and get it off my chest. That's normal. But what I've found is often we get one or the other. I used to work for a painting company years ago, and they had this wonderful sign in the shop that said, quality, service, price, pick two. And I think that's, that there's a lot of truth to that in our lives. And we can either complain to the poor soul who happens to be in earshot, or we can settle in to allowing the circumstances that we are in to be the transforming the, the means by which God transforms us and conforms us more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm becoming of the opinion you still got to complain. You still got to get it out. But what I see here in the Psalms over and over and over again, and this is why it's so important to, I think, to look at the lamenting Psalms. This is a lamenting Psalm. It's also highly messianic. That's why I want to do lamentations, okay? But what we see here with the psalmist is that he is complaining to the right person. Because often it is, we complain to people, we feel better afterwards, but they can't solve our dilemma, can they? Or you end up with Job's counselors. I don't know why I'm going here, but a th thought popped in my head. Job's counselors. Job goes through the theological place of eternal punishment and back in his life. He loses everything. And, and he has the three counselors. He even has his wife say, just curse God and die. That's a, that, you, you know, at times I've told people with divorce is cheaper to keep her. I think that would be an exception to the rule. But anyway, his wife tells, tells him to curse God and die. And then the three friends show up. There's a fourth one who shows up later. But the three friends show up and say, it's because you've sinned, Job. You're a sinner, Job. That's your problem. You're a sinner. If you wouldn't be sinning, this wouldn't be a problem. So stop sinning. This won't be a problem anymore. And I, I, it's not written in the book of Job, but I'm just looking for big print, big capital letters. And Job said to his free, three friends, shut your mouth. 
because they were not giving good godly counsel. And if the Holy Spirit, all right, follow my thinking on this. If one of the names for the Holy Spirit is the comforter, how can you truly be comforted by him if you do not pour your heart to him? Think about that. But you've ranted and raved, if you will, and, and gotten the catharsis. You've made the complaint to any or whoever would listen or, or however means that you do it. And the problem is that then you rip yourself off. You short-circuit yourself because you no longer even feel the need to complain because you've gotten it off your chest. And so you don't bring it to the Lord. Because you've already brought it to someone else. And so you, you kind of short-circuit your own spiritual walk in doing that. The book of Hebrews chapter 4, right around verse 14, 15, and 16, I'll read the whole portion for you. I have it in front of me. New King James, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firm to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. He was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I tell you what, I wouldn't have stayed on the cross. I I would have jumped off the cross. I would have uprooted that thing out of the ground and I would have used it as a weapon on all those people around me. That would have been my first temptation, right? Do you imagine, can you imagine the type of temptations that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane? Even when he said to the Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he saying? He's saying, if there's any other way other than the cross, let's do it. Wave a magic wand, snap your fingers, do something, speak it into existence. Don't, don't let, I don't want to go to the cross, essentially, is what he's saying. He had Satan offer him that type of temptation. The whole bit about the three temptations in the wilderness that we read about in the earlier part of both, the, both, both, uh, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke it is, is Satan's attempt to get him to shortcut and not go to the cross, particularly in offering him the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus would just bow down and worship him. Now, now think about that. The creator of the universe bowing down and worshiping the creation, now how much sense does that even make? But he, 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 had, he had such temptation, such temptation, 
temptation that is running around in my head that I, that I think that he probably dealt with that I don't even want to express to you. Hanging out with the people that he dealt with. The, the, the patience he must have had with the, the apostles, the disciples. I would have fired every single one, single one of them and probably rehired them so I could fire them again. They were, a, they were a thorn in his side. I hate to tell you what I would have wanted to have done to Judas. But he was tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. You see, here in Psalm 22, As, as I read the first verse and then, and, and, and then read verse 2 where it says, My God, I cry out by day, and you do, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. As I thought about that, I thought, wow, it, it must have felt like God was a million miles away. To use that expression. Have you ever felt that way? I've felt that way. Where are you? Why is this happening? And, and to have to sit in that place of being perplexed and not get resolution and not get closure and it doesn't make sense. And it feels like God is a million miles away. It's like he dropped you off at the babysitter but the babysitter wasn't home. Right? And you're there all by yourself. You see, the thing is, is that we often equate security and prosperity with God's presence and God's blessing. We equate security and prosperity with his presence and his blessing. And when those things are absent, then we automatically assume that he is gone on vacation somewhere. And he doesn't care about us. Or he's forgotten about us. And we feel very, very, very alone. God is a million miles away. And yet, what I have found in those dark times as it says uh, in, in, in verse 2, and by night I have no rest, or it says in the night seasons. It, in, in verse 2 of the New King James, it says, and in the night season I am not silent. I'm not silent. David does not take no for an answer. David does not take the silence of God for an answer. David keeps pressing he keeps pushing. He keeps pursuing. Now, is that easy? Don't raise your hand, please. Have you ever at times just felt like giving up? God's not answering. I'm done asking. Or then you get real spiritual. Well, maybe I'm just asking about the wrong thing. And maybe you are, right? 
Or maybe there's unconfessed sin in your life. And maybe, and I think sometimes these times of God's silence to us are a way for us to really allow the Spirit of God in such a quiet way to search us and try us to know our ways, search our hearts, and see if there be any wicked way in us. Which, to be quite frank with you, I'd rather do that between me and God than between me and you and God. And wouldn't you as well? Of course. We equate security and prosperity with his presence. And the absence of those things with his absence. It says in in the Hebrew... It says, you, uh, you have forsaken me. You have forsaken me. It's four words. It's one word in the Hebrew. Which literally means to leave, to leave behind, to abandon, to be absent, to depart from, to be in a remote place. It's this feeling of feeling very, this feeling of feeling very, very alone. It's interesting that in the New King James, it doesn't talk about the night. It talks about the night seasons in verse 2. And it could be speaking of a time of prayer at night. I pray at night, and usually I end up falling asleep before I say amen. And I think God's okay with it, and I am. He's the last thing on my mind at night before I go to sleep. Often what happens is I wake up with him being the first thing on my mind. So don't get all hung up on the formality of talking to God. He's a whole lot more gracious, I think, than we even make him out to be. Which is going to be a lot of fun when we get into Romans 14, if you've read ahead. But I won't go there this morning. It could be talking about those times of night prayer. It could be talking about those times of the dark night of the soul, which I think at times we go through. I've gone through more than I want to even express. And those times of the dark night of the soul that you, you don't sense him, you don't feel him, you feel he's a, he's a million miles away, and you say to yourself, it's still here for me. It's still been written for me. It, It's got to be true. It's got to be true because if this isn't true, then what is truth? So that was one of the best questions that Pilate even asked Jesus. What is truth? And because even though I don't feel it, even though I don't sense it, even though it's not real, doesn't feel real to me, and even though my life doesn't feel like it's all fitting together as I want it to be, it does not mean that it is still not true. And as David, in verse 2, as I already mentioned, he continues to cry out. He continues to press into the dark night of his soul. And what I have found at those times of the dark night of the soul is that, and this is going to sound really weird, but I got everybody's attention. In the dark night of the soul, God meets me in such a way that I can hardly even 
describe. And yet I know it's real. And I know it's him. And all of a sudden, when I feel like he's a million miles away and, the, and it's dark as dark and I can't see a thing, then all of a sudden he shows up. And it may not be very loudly. And often he doesn't turn a light on. And before I know it, it's like he's gone again. But I've been there with him. More importantly, I think, in the context of this passage, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is there with me. And if and I, I love, I love the, sto- the, the, the story of the woman with the issue of blood. I love her faith. I, I, the fact that all she, w- all she could do, trying to catch up to Jesus, and, and all she could do and, and, and think to herself was, if I could just touch the hem of the garment. You remember the story. She touches the hem and the garment. What happens to her? She's healed. And, of course, in that story, Jesus turns around and says, Who touched me? And, and, and confronted her uh, and, and, and confirmed what it was that he had done in her body. What he had done in her body, but what he had also done in her soul. And often it is in the dark night of the soul, God does something to our souls that we cannot articulate and verbalize because it goes beyond our reason. I know that's dangerous territory. But it's 2022, so live with it, right? It's what got me through the last two years. And what I believe got many of you through the last two years. And it'll be the grace that'll lead us home. Because here in this early part of the psalm, David is yet to get out of his dilemma. And yet, what does he say in verse 3? Yet you are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Nothing else to him makes sense. He's forsaken. God is a million miles away. And yet he affirms the truth. God, you are holy. And you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You know what? Even if you don't sing, I think it's so important that you sit and, and, and be with the congregation as we worship. And, and to, to, to really ask God, Lord, please. And sometimes he, there are times that God is here in such a way that at least I feel like I can cut it with a knife. And there are times, again, that it feels a million miles away. But it says that he is enthroned, or that word enthroned could mean that he dwells, he lives. It is his place of, 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 of communion, of his place of residence. 
that as we worship him together, whether we do it corporately or whether you do it individually, but as we worship him, he comes and he's there. Whether I feel him or not. Whether I sense him or not. And, and the psalmist here, David here, is reaffirming to himself, God, you are holy. I love this word in the Hebrew because it, it talks about being sacred. It talks about being set apart. It talks about being pure, undefiled. And interestingly enough, David uses the Hebrew word here that implies very strongly this idea of the context of one over another. So he's understanding God's otherness. Or as some commentators have referred to the Lord as his holy other. He's recognizing that God is so much greater than he is. And and so, so it's not written here, but I believe it's very strongly implied is that we have a God who is the creator of heaven and the universe that although I feel forsaken, although I feel like I, I feel like my prayers are not being answered, you are still holy, you are still the holy other, you are still the, the, the high and mighty creator of the universe, and I can trust in you. And by the way, can we get done with this dark night of the soul stuff? <laughs> I'm done with it. And you know what I ask that? You know what normally happens? You know what I normally hear? I don't hear a word. I don't hear a word. Sorry, wait. Think about all those psalms where David wrote where he talked about waiting on the Lord. This is what he's going through. This is what he's going through. You are enthroned in the praises. That word praise really refers to a song of praise. And then, although we didn't read it, he rehearses the history. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. That word delivered in the New King James. So we we look for that deliverance. We look to press in. Yes, this is a messianic psalm. Yes, there is so much here that, that prophetically describes the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is also a personal experience that we enter into because we have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin because he is holy. He dwells on the song praises of his people.